Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantelle. And today we're joined by Gargi Bhattacharya. Hi. <laughs> from <laughs> University of East London. And yeah, so two citizen here today. And we're going to do a little alternative to Women's Hour with a bit of racial capitalism on the side. <laughs> Gargi, you've just had a book out. Have you enjoyed doing all the talks and stuff for it? (laughs) (laughs) I think I think people write books because they prefer not to be seen. Oh right, (laughs) and that is why I certainly write them. (laughs) Why you agree to you agree to come on our podcast? So yes, because I know you're nice people and you're friends of my friends of mine. So I thought I must say yes. Nice young people ask me. Um, Oh, that's lovely. When you've been sort of talking about Mm -hmm. the book. Um, at various places how what has the reception been like have you had any sort of or the usual people in the audience that are like what about us or like white, white people aren't all bad or really surprisingly not oh, and, wow. and I think people are very overexcited about the book which as I, I was just saying I think that the term racial capitalism makes makes sense to people but almost makes a little bit too much sense as if oh yeah I know what that means and I really want to be confirmed in what I think. So what do you think people think it means? I think people have got a kind of of clocked that we're in a moment when racialised disciplines are so intercut with capitalist processes that you can't split them apart, which of course is part of what the analysis of racial capitalism is. And that also saying racial capitalism is a kind of shortcut out of having to say, oh, this is how I know about race, I know about this inequality. Not in a horrible way, but absolutely by saying, look, you can't split those two processes that are always hand in hand and intercutting each other. But what I think I always disappoint people with, disappoint myself with, is that it's hard to know the answer. That Saying that is just like, that's the question. Okay, once you know that these two quite ugly systems of dehumanising processes are always kind of cutting in and out of each other, so what? what? What do you do with that? And, and so I think I'm still struggling with like, what questions would you ask and where does that take us? But I think people want to talk about it. And because it's so systemic, people don't feel like, oh, what about white people? Mm. But they do think, oh, why is she talking about social reproduction and the planet so much? That's mm. what they think, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah, because you were just talking, talking to us, you connected racial capitalism with kind of ecological crisis I think often like anti-racist activism and climate change activism don't really Mm. interconnect so how do you see those two Mm -hmm. working together absolutely and and I think in the global north they haven't connected that much Uh, and my really mean account would be that because until quite recently and I think that's shifting and very much shifting from you know the uh, the school kids kind of activism, which is much mm. more globalised in its conceptualisation, that until then, quite a lot of the loudest voices in climate change activism were quite close to a defensive posture as if we save our way of life in the planet, which is all of you can stop emitting and stop eating and stop moving. There's still nations, <laughs> there's still nation within that, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Our way of life, yeah. I think that's pushed away by force, partly because... Mm. People are actually children are saying that's not how it is Mm. and also because other things are happening. But I think until recently it was articulated in that way. And I also think on the other side people involved in struggles around racism 
in this country I know more, but I guess in other parts of the global north as well, we're kind of saying we don't have the luxury to think about the climate or the planet because actually I just have to think about not facing violence today and getting to the end of the week. Mm. And there's also you know, real truth in that, but it's, it's not sufficient, is it? To say, look, I, my everyday survival is taking all of my time and energy so I can't think of how my everyday survival links to others. But I think the thing I was, I've been saying everywhere is that the global elite have started to say that climate change is a problem for capitalist expansion. And that, I don't think we've had a moment like that in the histories of capitalism that we know. That the time in which the people are meant to be the kind of um, pilots of global capital start to say, mm-hmm, business as usual cannot be business as usual. That there, there isn't an endless expanse that we can go and make new profit in. We, it's not that we can deplete this space and kill all the people and it doesn't matter because then there'll be a new space to go and do it in. We have all learned that the spaces are finite and that finitude is kind of coming back to kick the, glo- the elites of the global north. So I think that consciousness amongst international financial institutions and you know, the IMF and the World Bank, they're all writing stuff about this. What yeah, they're saying you, is sorry. that, you know, it's the next phase will be something different. And that next phase means something different for all our survival, differentially, not the same. Sorry, I'm talking. No, no, no. Right, I just no, wondered no, if you no. could give us that um, Christine Lagarde quote again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is like Christine Lagarde, who has lovely hair, I always like to say. Horrible <laughs> woman, lovely hair. <laughs> she does have good hair. hair. <laughs> but still, doesn't make her comrade, and let's not be fixated <laughs> on her hair, says that um, if we don't do something, we're going to be roasted, toasted and grilled. Now, it's a huge deal for the um, head of the IMF to say, look, we have to do something or be roasted, toasted and grilled. Because first, who is she speaking for and to? What she means is that we too, we too who have always escaped every ugliness in the world, we too will be toasted, roasted and grilled. And then the question is, what is she saying? She's saying, what can we do to make sure we are not the ones who will be toasted, roasted and grilled? And that, I think, is the next set of questions about racial capitalism that are already happening around us. The battle amongst global elites to say, well, if someone's going to be expendable, it sure is not going to be us. And what resources and violences do we have to make sure it is not us and ours? It makes me think, listening to you talk, that it's like we're getting further away from elites, nations, whatever, in the global north coming to terms with how they've exploited the global south. Mm. It's like we're getting... Even though, like, having an awareness of the racism intertwined within climate Mm. change, even though there might be more awareness Mm. of that, it feels like we're getting further away from actually discussing extraction of resources do you know what I mean so it's like she's saying we've got we need to think about how this is going to affect us how are we going to carry on Mm. no absolutely and I think that's I think that's really intriguing and also it's it's quite instructive for all of us who want the world to operate differently Mm. that on the one hand we are seeing by force again a whole kind of set of practices which are saying look at your history, look at your history, look at your history. I'm going to come and bring your history and throw it in your lap again so you can, however much you look away, you can sort of feel it in your lap. Yeah. And that's, that's a, a bottom-up approach, isn't it? You know, yeah. That's loads of people saying, it's not the elite saying, oh, I must reflect. It's like, you know, the rest of the world come and say, 
how do you think this happened? How do you think this happened? I've got to show you again and again in every mm. organisation. But I think you're right that the immediate response to that or what we seem to be living through right now, and it, this moment might be just turn on a pinhead because it could change in a moment, but right at this moment, I think we're seeing... I'm using the term global elite because I don't know what other, you know, the, the 1%, whoever you want to call them, that they're rereading that history of extractivism primarily as a kind of um, handbook of racial survival. Mm. The other day at the LSE and someone asked in the audience, is there not, um, can you give us a, po a positive take on colonialism? Is there not, was there nothing positive about empire? It was like, wow. The trains. Um, oh, did yeah. you know the British felt? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, visionism is like, and, and it's so there's, next level. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's all of that, which is huge. And I think, and in some ways, I think that's still the working out of um, what the history was. But um, I don't know if you saw, a, a couple of months ago, there's been a big report done about how the wiping out of indigenous populations in the, in the Americas brought the global temperature down quite a lot of degrees because if you wipe out even pre-industrialization if you just lose a whole load of people and this was written as a reparative gesture in order to say look this is this is how geology is is remade by these human violences but really I'm thinking all the time that's that's already too many clues as to how can be addressed. Yeah. And that Malthusian logic is already so embedded in the ecological thinking of the global north, I think. Not perhaps for activists, Some but the kind of institutional... Yeah, yeah. like, oh, seven billion people's too many people, so if a few so people in Bangladesh drown, <laughs> then, yeah. you know, maybe that's a good thing in the long run. That's horrifying. Also, because you think the environmental, like, aside from that human cost, obviously, of the, like, I don't know, invasion of mm. the Americas, mm. but, like, the ecological consequences of that were absolutely disastrous. Mm. Like, all of the dust bowl stuff mm. and the droughts mm. that you have now are a direct consequence of yeah. settler, mm. like, wiping out like whole forests, yes. like destroying the prairies. And, and like practices of coexistence, interspecies coexistence, yeah. or gone. Yeah. Which is, you know, the whole, that's capitalism too, isn't it? Yeah, of the, course. That, the end of having even, a, you know, interspecies cooperation seems a ridiculous way of saying it, but what else can we say now? Because that's what capitalism erodes and is mm. meant to erode, because to make resources into resources which are productive, you have to, that coexistence can't happen. That you know, you have to make others into resource. But then, on the other hand, it's the violence also promises to be the solution for the violence. Yeah, that's really tricky. That's a real capitalist trick. Yes, the rubbish you feel only having more of my poison can fix that rubbish. That's that's the circuit of um, yeah consumer culture and of capitalist promise. Yeah, so like what you were saying about people who are seen as migrants in the UK, so like people who are perceived as brown or black or whatever, are told like, okay, yeah, you can have rights in this country if that means that no more of you come in. So you can come here, but like, you better be grateful but for Sas your passport. But, but Saskia, isn't that going to change? Because global Britain... <laughs> Wants to do more trade with the global south, and that won't include immigration, will it? Like, if we no, have no. a 
That's what's weird. That's what I find really interesting about the... No, the worst like, thing is when politicians go like, I mean, who was it? You know the one you said who was like, by the way, Theresa May's a racist? Oh, Anna Subri. Anna Subri. And then she was like, and that's the thing, you know, how can we not have a customs union? Because otherwise, who's going to come and do the work that needs doing in this country? And it's like, not all the work. Let's be real here. The shit work yeah. that needs doing in this country. Like, we all know what you're talking about. In fact, that's a kind of remarkable instance of honesty, isn't yeah. it? When she says that, you know, yeah. who's going to clean my toilet? That's literally Who's it, isn't gonna it? wipe the asses of our old people? Who's going to be the security on dangerous buildings. That interview, I don't know if you saw that interview of Anna Subri after she joined the Funny Tinge Party, mm-hmm. was actually really fascinating, I think, in terms of racial capitalism, in the sense that the violence that people of colour have faced, particularly since Theresa May has been Home Secretary, mm-hmm. is like just unbelievable. Not to be present here, so obviously that's been going on for a long time, but basically in that interview, she was like... Yeah, so it's really weird. I've just started to think recently that Theresa May's actually maybe got a problem with immigrants. But it's like it gets to this. This is the point that it gets to. But like even a Tory. Even a Tory. It's like... It's sort of... That scares me. I'm sure that's bad faith performance. It's a performative... Do you think? ...thing for Anna Subri to say it. Yeah. Because, it, because of the ways in which the terms of Brexit have been bizarrely racialised as if no black people are part of the discussion but all was being spoken about. You think that, yeah, say, that would probably make more sense if it's performative, but I sometimes feel like the racism that goes on, are they completely blind to it? Is it like a a purposeful denial of it? Or Mm. is it, I don't know, if they can see that talking about racism is about to give them some capital, Mm -hmm. then will they do that? Like, it's a little bit like what Tinge is about, I guess. Like, well, the Conservative Party was just a bit too racist for us. We're going to go back to like a more... Kind of more genteel racism. Yeah, genteel Mm. racism. Absolutely. No, that's exactly what... Because people have legitimate concerns. Oh, my God. (laughs) Did I send you pictures of... um, So my cousin got married on the west coast of Scotland recently. And we, so my dad and my sister and I went and stayed in this B&B just outside Glasgow on our way up. And we were in this B&B and walking up the stairs, there was a row of like figurines of Indian porters, Ah. like about 30 of them. And then all the paintings in the house were like, an Indian servant, like, kneeling to their white master kind of thing, or, like, a picture of a leopard, or, like... Mm. I was just, like, what's going on here? I was so shocked. And then we met the guy who owned it, and, my God, like... I mean, he was exactly what I expected him to be. He literally... He called my dad sir, Mm. and, like, you know, he'd worked in the city, and now he was training as a minister, and, like... He had all these newspaper clippings on the walls of members of his family who'd been in the British Army and, like, one of whom had been a Conservative MP who'd been pro-minority rule in South Africa and had been, like, meddling in the South African government and, like, was too racist. There was a line in the obituary which was, like, too racist even for the Tories, like, not quite in those words, but basically... Yeah, yeah. It was fascinating because I was, like... Yeah, this is Brexit. <laughs> like, these are the that's, people. That's so, that's so interesting that you say that because I, I feel like in my childhood I'd meet quite a lot of people like that, but that, those are people because they're my parents' generation who they'd just been in India. Yes. Whereas this is someone, he must be younger, so yeah. this is his 
that's his um, heritage that he is reclaiming, isn't it? His imperial heritage, yeah, yeah. yeah, that I was not there, but I wish I was. Yeah. Because all that, because you used to, I don't, I haven't seen it for ages, but that all that kind of Raj nostalgia tat. Yeah. Which is about, My nan's yeah. got loads of it. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's intriguing. I've never yeah. seen it before. I've seen, like, in New York, there used to be a shop that sold gollywogs mm. and, like, just in the window. It's a digression, me, but, but like, it's the point the is. Memory, the, memory, the empire memorabilia. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. And, like, I don't know, I feel like that has kind of entered sort of more mainstream consciousness a bit of, like, the mm. imperial nostalgia of Brexit. But I guess maybe what you're talking about with the sort of not having anywhere left to exploit, mm. does that mean that places turn inward on themselves because I guess the point of empire and the point mm. of Europe as a mm. block is to like legitimize the exploitation of like mm. other places mm-hmm. but if you don't have other places to exploit yeah do you just start kind of collapsing in on yourself well yeah <laughs> I, I do wonder if that is what is happening with Britain because I think a large part, and you know, lots of other people have written about this, it's clear that within the Brexit narrative, there are all kinds of imperial nostalgias, and you'll have, you know, you'll always have a vox pop of, you know, Britain used to rule the world, what, you know, why do we think we can't rule ourselves? All these things, without any kind of understanding of how moments of British prosperity were absolutely built on exploitative change through the colonies, which none of which is available now. So I don't know what people think that we're going to eat or make or now, but anyway, mm. they don't think that. But it's also a withdrawal of a kind from the global economy as it is now, which kind of leaves you nowhere. You know, it can't all run a racist B&B on the west of Scotland, can we? Well, you know, that's not a retrieval of the total economy. So I think there's kind of absence, and and that's almost explicit in the Brexit leadership, you know, and Boris Johnson's crazed ruminations, and it's there, isn't it? It's like there's not a model of what will happen next. There's not an economic model. There's not an idea of what um, being a small nation in a differently globalised economy is. None of that is in the story. Mm. Because to say any of that, that's pretty disastrous if you say it to most of the British population. What are you going to say? But I do think that... Again, this sounds conspiratorial, and I think there's also a danger with talking about racial capitalism. It sounds like a big conspiracy. But I do think that there's been a judgment amongst one part of the most affluent sections of British society which thinks the best way to consolidate our local position is to kind of throw the rest of the nation into the sea, as if like going backwards would be better. Than even the Farage narratives about, oh, there's more important things to think about about the economy for you, who can pay your bills and are very rich, mm. but... For the country, that's kind of something going on about almost a re-establishing of an even more hierarchical, inward-looking country. And we're already, you know, hugely poorer than many parts of the the developed world. We're the second wealth inequality gap in Europe. Oh, I didn't know that, but yes, it doesn't surprise me. Behind who? Oh, I can't remember... I'm su- well. No, we're yeah, surprised we we're not be, top. So we used yeah, to be, I was going to say <laughs> we've lost. Do you know what? I might be getting that confused. We might be top, but we used to be dis- We used to have the smallest gap mm-hmm. in like 1979. So yeah. it used to be the most. Like, are you kidding? Yeah, but where does that money come from? As in, like, yeah. the reason we had the smallest gap was because 
we had this big export economy based on colonial possessions. Partly, but we also had... Yes, it's always that, but it's also always internal battles around how you have a kind... Even if it's a nationalist labour movement, a nationalist labour movement... Mm. Yes, trade unions... That you have a kind of... The the Keynesian contract, it's always all those things together. All of that was smashed apart so much. So it's like, you didn't lose the money immediately, but you lost the counterbalance internal power. Yes, no, you're right, you're right. And so that's when it starts going like that. So the rich, they've still got the legacy of that. It's just no one else does anymore. No, that's so true. Mm. And like... the social wage is gone. That's really true. And it's kind of interesting. So my PhD is on... um, like the north-south divide, and like I've been trying to think about how northernness and southernness have like like transnational connections. Basically, like it's not just an internal divide; it's one that's based on like histories of colonialism and like <laughs> trying to like rethink how it's not just an English thing. Like Englishness is not just formed internally in mm. some kind of spontaneous mm-hmm. like oh <laughs> we're yeah, just yeah, all yeah. England you know it's like yeah, yeah. a relative Absolutely. to other nationalities and like all other kinds of tensions and stuff going on and yeah like a lot of thinking about like the kind of narrative of Brexit around like oh forgotten towns forgotten places mm. like nothing like nowheresville you know like oh you know you can all see the picture of like someone walking wearing just like totally grey down like a post industrial mm. street where there's just like rubbish flying in the wind and then you know it's like some guardian story about how there's nothing anymore and there's no jobs and no one does anything and thinking like like, what is the story? Because, like, there is something, yeah, like you say, there is something in there about, like, losing trade union power, losing power, like, losing any concept of, like, workers' rights being an important thing mm. has had, like, absolutely catastrophic effects for mm. people and, like, austerity mm. is just another version of mm. that. That's just another way of being very inward-looking, right, as well, by kind of um, sort of fetishizing that, like... Or, or to understand that as a racial or a national catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I guess that's, that's very the... willful. And and sadly, those who wish to tell it as a national racial catastrophe have been doing better than the others of us who want to say, well, look, actually, if anything, it's a class catastrophe mm. and potentially a cross-class catastrophe because it's Effects both of... the precariat, <laughs> it's the formal working class, it's nearly everyone who is not the, the hyper-rich now in this country. Yeah. And that if we talk about, and even Brexit as a middle-class endeavour, I think that's absolutely true, because, you know, because Danny Dawling shows us the maps, you can <laughs> see who voted for it. But that doesn't, to just say it as that soundbite, doesn't quite capture the extent to which even those who might recently or still now think of themselves as middle-class also think of themselves as under economic threat and expendable and almost precarious. And that isn't only a racialized fear, that's an actual legitimate fear, I think, given the world we live in. We're absolutely being trained to think that and believe it. That is what disciplining us for both governance and the economy is about, to say all of you are expendable, you might have some differential privilege, but none of it is sufficient to pull you out of um, the danger of precarity and disposability. And therefore, how are you going to think about that? So I think even people who don't live in post-industrial landscapes they're right to feel frightened about their livelihoods. They're just wrong to say that that's a racialized threat. But you know, I'm not convincing any. You know, we are not as convincing anyone by saying racialized that. as in because you're white working class, or racialized as in. 
well, racialised either that because you're white working class or racialised in that the problem is insufficient state racism. Right. But that's yeah, yeah, what's failed yeah. to protect yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. Because, you know, the people, these these migrants are coming over and they're yeah. getting the houses that you or, were entitled or to whatever. or whatever. Or they're flooding the labour market. Yeah. Or they're just wrecking the economy or they're making our... Or even they're making the public services not work. All of those things are kind of ways of pushing a fear which comes from a real shift in material conditions sideways onto some imagined other. Yeah. The key threat or the key force that works against us is capitalism. How do we, as academic activists, fight against the academy or certain disciplines pushing this a white working class narrative that is devoid of looking at the multiracial oh, that's yeah. such presence, a good question. presence of working classness mm. how do we push against that adequately because I just feel like no lessons are being learned and mm. I'm I, I almost feel like this is just a, this isn't representative of the whole academia just in like my little world I almost feel like I'm seeing it more yeah. than ever Absolutely. Um, particularly with regards to Brexit mm. No matter how many talks Gaminda Bambra does. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. You can't put it all on her. No, you can't put it all on me either. But you're just seeing, like, class analyses of mm. Brexit that is completely playing into Absolutely. this imagined community. No. Yeah. And that, that's not to say... When I say imagined community, that is not to say there are not people who are homogenised as white that are working mm. class. It's not saying mm. that. It's just saying that they're not the... the the entirety of the working class. No, absolutely. Does that make... Firstly, I think you're absolutely right. It's it's willful. The highlighting of this fiction of the white working class mm-hmm. is a willful campaign. It starts under New Labour. Mm-hmm. Um, that terrible red-haired woman from Salford, who I've repressed her memory, but... <laughs> Terrible Blairite MP. Harriet Harman? Oh, no, no, she no, Harriet Harman. Harman. She was the one who, um, she had to run away and hide because she flipped her house to her brother. She used to ride a motorcycle. Do you remember? Oh, and then not, she, Julie, not Julie McBride. Um, no, no, I remember her. She was, uh-huh. She's so dreadful that I've just repressed her memory. But she had a home office position and she commissioned a whole report about the, the plight of the working class and really, and views of mm. immigration. In fact, I had a, colleague who wrote on that and he said and that they just stripped the work to make the only publicity to be about the white working class oh no he worked on the research yeah and that's not what the research was so that's so it's absolutely willful and it's been willful in electoral politics at least for 20 years around an idea that this is will be a mobilizing and think tanks as well think tanks yeah yeah, demos used to oh bloody (laughs) that's one of the few benefits of growing old that some of these people just die in front of you and think oh I never have to have anything sent through the post for me from Demos again thank goodness (laughs) 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 it's one of the consolations of middle age I guess guess it's almost like I sort of expect it from that world now Mm -hmm. but in seeing it just sort of reproduce in academia yeah but because like like all the widening participation stuff, like it just filters into like every area of like, oh, we need to focus mm. on, we need to help mm. these poor boys. Mm. The education system is failing boys. It's failing white boys. boys. And you're like, yeah. if you look at who earns the most, yeah. for yeah. some reason it's also white boys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Why does no one ever connect those two figures? Yeah. It's almost like you don't have to be as well qualified mm. if you're a white man to do the same thing. But I also think that that concoction of that kind of political soundbite has continued so that 
because academia has to be so self-publicising now mm. and so self-branding, mm. but the niche of speaking for the forgotten white working class has become a very convenient and very amplified vehicle for some people. Some of those people on right I don't think they believe it even. I was thinking, I won't say who, because then you could still use this, but one of the key figures, I was thinking, well, I don't know you well, but I know people who know you. I really don't think you you don't believe the way you were summarised. Yeah. But it's still useful for you not to contradict that mm. because then every TV programme, when you want to talk about the forgotten white working class, you are on again. Mm. And, hey, that's impact, and then you can mm. get promoted, and then it's just meant to be good for our jobs. Yeah. And people also self-rationalise that that's a way of making a difference because you're in the debate. Mm. Whereas when we say, oh, it's much, much more complicated, mm. actually we're never in the debate because that's never a good soundbite. And even to kind of say, oh, the working class has always been multiple and multiracial that's not a good soundbite because people say well look again with an element of truth that's true in some big urban spaces but it's not true nationally because Britain is an odd place with only a few big cities in which basically all the people of colour mainly live mm -hmm. if you take out London and Birmingham mm -hmm. that's nearly all of us gone mm -hmm. and then loads and loads of strange landscapes which have been made from different histories of industrialisation, deindustrialization, where people are kind of white. I also think that people in this country didn't think of themselves explicitly as white until very recently. Mm. That the previous British racisms until very recently were about nation. Mm. That you were foreign, not that I am white and you are black. I am British, you are black. That's a different logic. So it's also that repetition is to school white people to become white. Stop so being this is, British. That's really interesting because I remember, yeah. so I went to a talk recently uh, where Gaminda Bambra mm. and David Goodhart were speaking. With, yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, but yeah. it was amazing because she just like ripped in shreds mm. and like the whole audience was just people of colour and like it was great. It was very cathartic. Mm. I'm not sure it made a difference in the yeah. long run, but like yeah, yeah. everyone in the audience yeah. needed it. Yeah. Um, and he said something like, you know, People couldn't have even imagined in the 80s that you could be such a thing as black British and that's changed. So why couldn't, like, it's all going to be fine kind of thing? And I was like, that is actually an interesting point, but not for the reasons he mm -hmm. thinks it's interesting. Like, the fact that black people can now be British mm. means that you need to reformulate racism in order to exclude those people, mm. right? Because if it's like, you used to be able to just be like, I was born mm -hmm. here, I'm entitled to the welfare state, like, mm -hmm. I've paid my taxes, la, 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 well... If black people have been born here as well, mm. it doesn't matter. Then that's not really an argument. It doesn't matter. They can still deport. They can, they can no, exactly. Deport. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah. On a different. They'll just find a different excuse. Right. It's like, well, you're not white, so you can't possibly be entitled to the same yeah. things. But I think well, there's all, also lots of things going on, isn't there? So I think the active articulation and of a white identity and a kind of inserting that again, again to popular discourse. That's part of a global project of white identitarianism. Yeah. You know, that, that's one, another reason why we're hearing it in Britain, because it's in the States. So that's, mm. And the people who are coming to say, this is how you want to think, they can say, this is what you need to, to get these unhappy, legitimately unhappy people to use their unhappiness for your ends. You need to teach them to be white. Oh my God, and that's like kind of going... It's like the transatlantic got turning point here now that just launched the far mm. right. What is mm. turning point? It's like a conservative momentum, but maybe a little bit more... Far right, led is is that oh, Steve Bannon advises. Steve I think Bannon well, I advises them. Candice Owens, who's the black woman that is in yeah. with Trump, oh, like 
it's it's they're like, the ones who say it's so horrible to go to university because all my lecturers are so liberal. Yes, <laughs> that's who they are, and they did a little. Only. They did a little yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, let's, they I'll go there. Place, yeah. <laughs> they did a little. They did a little tour recently, um, and it is. You're right. They've come. It's like the. It makes me think of the anti-abortion lobby, you know, mm. how, like, they fund yeah, 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 loads yeah. of groups on UK campuses to, mm. like, hold those fetus pictures up mm. and harass people. It's like, yeah, you're, yeah, it's very interlinked, isn't it? Yeah, and, and so, and we know that... It's odd to call it a white nationalist project it's a transnational project. <laughs> it's a transnational project. <laughs> transnational <laughs> white nationalist yeah. project is... Um, when they share you know, all those narratives about globalisation leaving some communities behind, yeah. about hitting deindustrialised communities, of linking different kinds of socially conservative agendas all together, we know that they're training each other. That some of these very, mm. very violent people, then we hear they've been to some training camp. They're not, well, I think they are training to fight, but they're training ideas. Yeah. And some of the ideas they're training are that. So whiteness starts to make a different sense in this country, which I really think, Britain has been horribly racist my whole lifetime, but it hasn't always articulated its racism around an attack on whiteness. Yes. I don't think yes. I don't think any white people I was growing up with would ever think of saying, oh, me and just white. I just think, oh, you're a packy. They don't think about themselves. They don't have to think about yeah, themselves. Like, my white identity is <laughs> under threat. Yeah, like, so yeah. And now suddenly something has it's to be It's like, said. oh, well, you get identity politics, so Reverse why don't racism. we? Yes, yeah, it's like the men's rights well. advocates or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like... They didn't exist until feminists were like, mm-hmm. we're oppressed as yeah. women. Yeah, absolutely. And suddenly it's like, what, you get a movement? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's some of that going on as well. And I think mm. partly because it's so inflammatory. Then I, I sound so old, but I, I do don't. think that I'm going to tell you this old thing, this old person thing. I think that the ways that media discourse now operates around trying to make everything a false, falsely polarised debate. White identity politics really works well in that. Mm-hmm. Other forms of more nuanced or less assertive analyses of race and class, they don't work well in that. So you can see, like, when the TV is deciding who to have on, someone who will say, even if they have to be pushed to say it, yes, it is a left-behind white working class, is a better bet for them than someone who says this is an imperial nostalgia and actually the working class have been fragmented and divided. And, you know, it's, it doesn't work in terms of, well, who are you going to have against you then? Mm. Because we want to have good telly is two people who think seemingly bizarre oppositional things fighting each other. Mm. Debate means that. All of that helps that transnational agenda to say, OK, let's insert these key phrases again and again so that the entertainment industry and the transnational right... They kind of have this horrible convergence of what... And then we suddenly all start to be spectators to an idea that the whole world is in race war, which seems to be where we are. So it reminds me, just sort of relating it to, yeah, other media. Jordan Peele was director. He did Get Out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a horror film, basically, about racism. Yeah. And then he's just got a new film out called Us. And basically mm-hmm. he said last week that he couldn't ever imagine casting a lead that was white mm-hmm. and the backlash it's like yeah, and yeah, I yeah. saw like a tweet there's something like oh wow I feel really sorry for white people you just have to go for, get every other role like <laughs> apart from Jordan Peele but it's like that, that yeah 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 that, but he that said kind of, that knowing that would get that reaction yeah. as well I don't know it's like good publicity right because everyone's mm. talking about 
Yeah. I'm not saying like he's cynical, like fair enough. It's good publicity, but we do know that sort of irrespective of power, that attacking whiteness does have, that can have repercussions for someone's lives and careers. So it's actually pretty, I don't want to say the word brave, it's not necessarily brave, like all he's done is say a It is risky for... (laughs) It's interesting though. And I also wonder if, and I guess people are working things out. So when I say, oh, media discourse, including social media discourse, encourages us to take polarised views because this Mm -hmm. fakeness of debate and things are easily summarised... That's kind of a way of trying to inhabit that differently, isn't it? To say, okay, if you want good racialized branding, I will give you good racialized branding. And I think that's kind of intriguing. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 From that point of view, yeah. almost like another, a further. Yeah, in a way, because it's like, endeavor. oh, well, Benedict Cumberbatch got loads of publicity when he used the word coloured, so oh. maybe I'll just <laughs> do the same but thing I, back. I don't mean only it's branding, it's branding and it's also a political intervention. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Not yeah. Like, yeah. It's both of those things. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah. like, aha, you're all crying about your yeah. whiteness. I will give you something to cry about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I quite like. Oh, yeah, fine, yeah. Fine. Okay. No, we did. no. It is, it is really interesting the way public debate cannot facilitate an environment where we talk about race and class mm. together. Like, even we had a BBC reporter contact our podcast being oh. like, can you give us some, like, tell us about your understanding of race and class? And Tiso, like, spoke to them on the phone and he was like, they just really did couldn't, get to grips with talking about race and class no. together and kept wanting me to talk about a white working class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah. yeah, so we didn't do the interview. So we didn't do the interview. Kel's no. Supreme's. But yeah, exactly. So like people who will be like, no, I'm not going to play along with that narrative. You're right. Your career will suffer because mm-hmm. the BBC is going to be like can't really put that in like a 10 second clip so I can't put that on our social media channels and like actually yeah no thinking about the social social conservatism of that kind of right wing thing on social media another huge thing is like turf feminism right like Mm -hmm. anti-trans feminists and other people just like I will never cease to be astounded how many famous people feel like they need to come out as trans haters on social media. It's It's bizarre and it's like this weird, Mm. I mean, again, talking about conspiracy theories, but it's like this weird collusion. And then those same people, when the whole um, including LGBT relationships and same-sex relationships, Mm. education and Mm. um, the media is seized on this case of... Birmingham, mm. and it's the same school where... It's Trojan Horse School, Trojan Horse yeah. Fair, which I can't remember the details of now, but it was the thing about, like, a radical Islam in school. Yes, it, the Trojan Horse Affair was the... turns out to be quite fictional allegation. It's, that, oh, my God, I found out that I met... Yeah, it's bullshit. Uh, yeah, because there's an academic that's working on it with the school, sort of acting as, like, an advocate. I is it John Homewood? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, right, sorry. Uh, no, <laughs> sorry, 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 I don't know but, you but, to say Yeah, that. yeah. Yeah, like, I yeah, yeah it was totally fictionalised. But so I grew so I grew up in Bromsgrove, obviously. Yeah. And it was in, I was in Bromsgrove at that time when this was all happening, and there was just absolutely no indication ever that there was anything fiction about it. It was fed to us as if like yeah, Sharia yeah. law is taking yeah, over yeah, Birmingham. Yeah, 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 like yeah, 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 it's yeah. actually insane that it was just bollocks. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. it's it's complete it's, bollocks. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like, the idea that socially conservative Muslim parents had taken over a school governing body, which they probably had because that's who went to that school, um, but with the view of radicalising the whole school and kind of instituting these kind of... And it was a school that had 
very good attainment, which is horrible. That's really probably why they infiltrate, infiltrated the governing body. It's what their kids to do well, so it became a high-performing school. Ofsted came and said, aha, they might be getting great exams, but what about their um, British values and inclusion? And, and made them a failing school, which allows them to do all this stuff. So it became this whole kind of thing. So it's that school so again. So it's like in the, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, like councils used to bus out brown children from areas where white people didn't want it's basically the same thing right it's saying like we don't want brown kids doing well in schools because then that devalues the whole system well that's what's <laughs> yeah that's, yeah i don't know i mean i think without being there i think as always everything is more complicated yeah, isn't course. it yeah. because it's also about well in a system where suddenly all state schools are meant to be about ranking then some parents who get the system say oh well we'd rather be ranked higher but that has some consequences for what a school can do. Because it's horrible to be in a high-ranking school, in my view, as a child, as a parent. I try and look for schools that are not very high-ranking. Mm. Because to do well at Ofsted, that means that's a nasty, nasty place to be. That's quite a side note. Oh, yeah, that for people sure. Should the everyone way say. The, the culture in that school is going to be horrible. Yeah, exactly. So um, there's other yeah. kind of tensions with the teachers. But then that also becomes a culturalised tension around Islam and non-Islam. It, well, mm. because you've got... Parents running schools across the UK. I know, exactly. What, where can we get to this story? <laughs> yeah, oh parents are the worst. <laughs> but yeah, what the point is, the point is, to get back to the LGBT yeah, sorry, thing, sorry, sorry, yeah. this same school, it's been picked up by the media, mm-hmm. as having a No Outsiders thing where they were protesting. Like, like I don't really know whether it's true or whether it's not or what's happening, but basically those same... My point is the same people who are coming out as anti-trans on Twitter and who have a lot of clout, actually, like, in terms of their media mm-hmm. voice and, like, you know, doing disgusting things with their platforms are then going, oh, my God, I can't believe how homophobic these Muslims are. Yes, yeah. So that's, And, yeah. like, the ways they're talking about trans people are identical to the way, mm-hmm. like, gay people used to be demonised in the media. Like, identical. Mm-hmm. The same, like... Just all the same rhetoric about, like, oh, you know, we're turning children gay and, like, we're, they're, like, ruining society mm-hmm. and, like, it's, like, a social plague and suddenly all these people are coming out and that shows that, you know, yes. like, and it's infectious. And I'm not against trans people, but no. I'm just worried about innocent children becoming involved. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly almost the, the same. same words. But all... Again, you see, all of this feels like it shows my age, but it seems so concocted and even the concoction of... As you say, people who ha- who don't have a dog in that race or having something to say, that's to do with creating a social space in which there's something there's something of value to show yourself to beyond one side or the other in some because that's how this fake controversy is happening. So people who both don't care about the issue and don't care about the consequences of their speech are saying inflammatory things because there's a different kind of value for their personal profile of being on one or the um polar position in this very um, fractious and emotive debate. And I think that's, none of that is accidental. How does that become this core issue? And um, I think it was, as Shaka was saying, on one of those terrible TV shows where they were talking about Brexit. Daily politics. One of those. And and I thought that was such an important intervention because one of the days, many in the last three months, what else has been on any politics TV in this country? And they tried to have some whole trans scare thing and it was on the front of one of the papers and she was the, the first one to say yeah but we need to ask why is this story on the front of the papers and even the right wing commentator said yeah that's the right question why does that story become how can it be in this country that we went from 
people not knowing what the word trans meant 10 years ago to suddenly everyone on the bus having a view about how trans people are corrupting their children. That's, it's that's like, an orchestration of public debate and it has a relation to the orchestration of public debate around the lost white working class and some other moments which kind of work in this newly being remade public arena that we're all trying to say things in. And I, and I can only say again, I think it really militates the kind of work all of us do mm. because it's against thought kind of debate. Do these things, you know, whatever you're thinking about, even if you're thinking something right wing, it's a kind of anti-thought way of, because you have to say it quick, it has to be one position or the other, it can only be two positions, otherwise it doesn't work as a fight. If I introduce a third position, no, it doesn't work anymore because the theatre is all about one or the other. If I'm not sure which position you're in, oh, well, that's about the story. I think, oh, this... Kind of, we all need to get our heads around that, because it really feels like we're all saying dumber and dumber things to each other. And I know, on the other hand, people are reading more and listening to interesting podcasts and doing stuff, but that has no connection to this, oh, the public debate is for the white working class against them, for trans rights against them. It's like... <laughs> another, a sort of another... There's a few sort of... Is it the right word synonym? What's when you're saying, like, a word? Or that means like, another word. Yeah. Yeah, synonym. Yeah. Other synonyms around the white working class as well that's using these sort mm. of big public spheres you need to be for or against is ordinary working people. Oh, yeah, yeah. And oh. ordinary working jams. people. Jams. Um, not quite... I don't think... I think jams are off the radar now. Do you reckon? Because, yeah, because jams don't actually help the Tories anymore because jams uh. are being fucked by austerity big time. Yeah. So okay, it's like, right. Whereas, like, sorry, jams normal, was just about managing. But normal working people. Um, my a friend of mine was looking at um, flyers in the British Library from um, the nineteen seventy nine EU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, go with the, the re- was it a referendum? Or yeah, a referendum. Was it, referendum? It was earlier, it was like seventy four. Seventy four, and then 70, she was seventy five. And she was also looking yeah, at yeah. Um, some flyers yeah. around just after Windrush came as well. And the language is absolutely the same. Like ordinary working people, working people. Mm. Um, That's fascinating. Like, it's amazing, like how resonances with phrases are mm. developed over time, mm. and like each mm. wave of right-wing mm. violence. And I guess it's the same on the left. Like, can black, can black, like I never imagined black, even though they are, because of the way it's framed, because of how much, how many sound bites there are of it, do we ever get to imagine black and brown people as ordinary working people? No. They're you're not. migrant. Yeah, you're migrant. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so that the term ordinary implies all those things and... I mean, and that's what, I don't know, I feel like all social research, you always come across people who say, oh, I'm just, I'm just ordinary, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's something that people really hang on to. But yeah. it's, something, it's something that, like, yeah, is very dear to certain, yeah, certain no, no, people absolutely. to be allowed to be ordinary. I forgot, well, the other thing I was going to say, which I don't know, of, of interest to both of you, is that, of course, this resurrection of the white working class comes after a period... You know, the Blair years were that, well, we're all middle class now. Mm. Absolutely. I don't know why I keep repressing them. I can see her face. But then it was near the end of the Blair years that they decided that, oh, we must talk about class, but only in this racialised way. So it's kind of a... And that was partly a kind of, I think, a regional battle within the Mm. Labour Party as well about, okay, we're not actually all middle class now. If you... if you go out of London, clearly people are not even pretending to be middle class. But yeah, so that there's also something about an appetite for a resurrection of a class politics and how you capture that for um, conservative small C agendas. 
which is because I do. You know, when you say, "Oh, look, there's a whole new generation of anti-capitalists," I think that's true. But anti-capitalism need not be progressive. Or oh no, absolutely. <laughs> I so mean, that's like, the kind of that's up for grabs. So people yeah. legitimately yeah. peed I mean, off because look what capitalism has given me. Not much mm. less than my parents' generation, and even less than my children's generation. But then, who can capture that? So the well, I think that's that's one of the problems that, that, like, I don't know if we've talked about this, but one of our problems with Corbynism is mm. those elements of kind of the like old school mm. trade union, like, of course, like yes, that did have benefits in terms of like opposing mm. some kinds of establishment, but in other ways it was like, yeah, super racialized, nationalized, like you know, trying to mm. keep what we have and like mm. not really about redistributing mm. stuff to everyone, you know. I guess. <laughs> I guess what I'd say is that because we've lived through a period in which trade union power has declined, that we've forgotten too quickly how trade unions themselves were always a site of contestation. So on the one hand, part of the British trade union movement, of course, is white nationalist, is highly sexist, is about protecting the male wage, all these things. But also, if you look at some of the moments of progressive politics in this country about what black self-organisation means, about what... Um, women's rights means, what, what LGBTQ rights are. They also come from battles with, within the trade union movement, yeah. not from outside it. So that's also trade unionists yeah, yeah, who are doing yeah. that, fighting with other trade unionists. And because we've kind of muted that history, mm. then it's like, oh, well, people who want to speak on behalf of the, the, la the traditional labour movement themselves have forgotten that history mm. because lots of things would never have happened in this country. Oh, wait, so sorry, you're saying that people who back, like... Corbynism have forgotten those histories. Well, some of the people I think who are talking for the, the, you know, because the traditional white working class, that phrase happens in, in the Corbynist camp as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It? that's what, yeah, that I phrase guess that's what trans, I meant. Or like I've heard Corbynists say to me like, yeah, you know, like I think the only way to protect workers' rights is to end freedom of movement. And you're like, mm. who's, which, yes. <laughs> who do you think is Which moving? workers' rights? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's, uh, I don't know if I, don't, I think, have I said it on the podcast? I might have said it on the podcast before, but basically my, when my dad um, came here at the beginning of the Thatcher years, um, having been born here anyway and then like mm. growing up um, in Kenya and the States, he had had his citizenship taken away and then Corbyn, Ken Livingston, at the, at the time, in the beginning of the Thatcher years when she attacked mm. Commonwealth citizenship, um, they like gave... Lo they made sure loads of mm. Commonwealth citizens were given um, mm. citizenship and my dad was one of those beneficiaries. Yeah. They were just doing it like backhandedly in the yeah. in the London General Assembly. Like that history is so Yeah. Yeah, important. and like you're right, like yeah. the kind of like political blackness, a yeah. lot of that came out of trade union. Yeah, it's trade yeah. union things, like trade union organising around and yeah, like a lot of the changes in the Labour Party about getting the Labour Party to actually give a shit about mm. queer rights and stuff came out of and and also a lot of street activism was in quite close alliance and material hook to the trade union movement so if you look at community campaigns trade union branches kept them alive you know who had a photocopier? Who let you meet yeah, in their yeah, room? Yeah, yeah. Who the will pass a motion through your conference so that then you have a national profile? And I tell you, as someone trying to be in an activist group, trying to find a space to do activism now is really hard. It's really hard. Like, if it's not... Like, so... We used to... Our activist group used to meet in the back of a pub, which is, like, not ideal. It is not an ideal space. Mm. Like, there just aren't... No. Like... 
that kind of makes me feel a bit like it's just horrible the thought that like there was that absolutely and it was deliberately destroyed yes. because because yeah. it's part of destroying the labor movement because yeah. the labor movement is, has never been only about negotiating with the employer it's the whole infrastructure of what working class organization can be so that's buildings spaces networks mm. representation so it's you want to smash every part of that so lots of trade union buildings have gone so but i think people now I think people have become, become so brainwashed with an idea that only a kind of social conservatism can be possibly articulated as electoral politics, that people are kind of on the left on lots of issues, also have learnt to, as if they're ventriloquising a kind of socially conservative white working class. And that, I think, is performative as well, whether they know it or not, because it's not even their own history. You know, they might even be individuals who've been in those other spaces. You sometimes hear them. Mm. You know, it's, it's some of the people who are in the leadership of the trade union movement now. Some of them, they've been through those things. Again, I would cut all the names up, but very annoying Jack, Jack Dromey. You know, he had a role in um, Grunwick, even though he didn't have as big a role as he says he did. But, you know, he was... Grunwick he was, was like a big... I can't remember uh, In a photo was, um, processing yeah. plant and a very, very famous labour dispute in the 70s, which was seen to be run largely by Asian and other migrant women. Most of the women working there were Asian and Caribbean. There were some Asian men working there. They walked out on the basis of not having their, um, not having a recognised trade union, but it was about really basic um, workplace rights, the right to go to the toilet, things that have come back to workplaces, that you, know, you can't have a we at work, which has come right, right back. So, and, and it was this huge dispute in the 70s. And... All of the so-called white movement also supported it because it was seen as this key deal-breaking dispute about recognition, because recognition, that's for all of us. If, if workers cannot have a recognised union, then no worker can start to safely have a recognised union. So, so oh, you know, people who talk about the white forgotten, you know, or ending freedom of movement, they're willfully repressing a very recent part of their own history yes. as well. yes. And on that note, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, well, maybe like you said earlier, though, Gargi, that we're in a moment now where the moment could be flipped on its head. Mm. So, if we did get some sort of voting, I don't know whether that's a, I really don't like the idea of a people's vote, but anyway, people's vote or general election, mm. maybe things are about to turn their head again. Maybe we're about to get more public funding. Maybe not, though. Looking at the numbers, even... Well, what could happen, what I keep... This is my, like, disaster mm. scenario. Oh, is it all goes to shit, London collapses. So there's loads of free space because all the capitalists <laughs> leave. That's already kind of... No, but that's already... No, I know, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. As in, like, that's what, like, we're fundraising tonight at RGSM for City Plaza, which is like um, a group of migrants in Athens mm. who just took over like an old... Absolutely. Like hotel, like abandoned building Amazing. and like 400 people live there. That's but that's incredible. possible because of the financial crisis, mm. which has caused like untold pain. To yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Absolutely. It's... So I think, <laughs> it's firstly, you have to dig where you stand. So it depends what destiny gives us right now. But I also... I like that dig where you stand. But, the, but there's something really important about trying not to over-identify our own well-being, our collective well-being, with capitalist productivity. And, and even... And you see, that part, I think, of the Brexit, even the right-wing Brexit critique, is true. 
So when Farage says the economy isn't everything, he doesn't mean this, but it's true that the boom time of Britain was never boom time for most of the population, black or white. And so that's a real insight to then say, OK, well, then economic catastrophe may be an, the only possible opening to better ways and different ways of living with each other. But then what, what would survival be and how do we think about what sustains life? Because sustaining someone else's profit may not sustain my life or my loved one's life. But it, may, it also makes me think as well, uh, obviously there's, possi there's possibility with some sort of disaster economic outcome but there's also that sort of hi history where someone gets blamed and someone is the scapegoat which is Absolutely. something which I think is really like and then quite, what visible, happens. quite <laughs> yeah. visible right now yeah. like the white na like the white fascist movement yes. I think we're in a very very dangerous moment I think lots of people so. feel like that that this is a moment and even elements of the elite are feeling like and, you know we push this agenda and it's and now it's a bit scary even you know it, I think it is scary. I've not lived, not since my childhood, a moment where it seemed that Britain was so on, on a knife edge that, mm. you know, the fascist impulse, not necessarily the level of fascist organisation, but the fascist impulse that if only some authority would come in and put people in their place, if only the military would take control, you can kind of almost hear it if in, in the air. If only we had more bobbies on the beat to exactly, stop and search absolutely. people and make sure. If only the law could be made the law. Even if, you know, these... Th and of course, there's more. You, know, you can see why people feel that and want it, and it's there. But I also think grown-ups forget who's watching. So you're also having a gen generation of young people watching this, who are learning a different set of lessons from watching this. Mm. But that's medium term. Mm. I think immediately it's going to be tough, tough times. We all need to learn some collective survival techniques. <gasps> <gasps> On that note, <laughs> um, you've been listening to Surviving Society. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, actually, um, for podcasting at the BSA conference, Woo! which is really exciting. So we'll have some, we'll have quite a few podcasts here over the next few months. And um, yeah, thank you.